DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Aaron Westman, who is Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missionaries. He is a PhD from the Catholic University of Levang in Systematic Theology. Glen Mary, the religious congregation he belongs to, is a missionary society of apostolic life of the Catholic Church. Glen Mary conducts missions in rural, poor, and non-Catholic areas of the United States, primarily in the Southeast and Appalachia. With Father Aaron Westman, we go inside the pages of The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, published by New City Press. Father Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Chris, it's really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I am so excited to talk about the Church's mission in a polarized world. When I received it, I wasn't 100% sure where you were going to go, just from the title. But then as I dove into it, it's almost prophetic in so many ways. If prophecy is to be able to clearly delineate what's happening in our world right now, and there's a call to respond, this one is probably one of the best that I've read. Thank you so much. What encouraged you to take on this incredible project? Thank you so much for those words and and for saying that about the book. That means a lot to me because, as I'll kind of mention here, this has been a personal journey for me too. So in as much as we're talking about the theme of polarization, it might seem like, you know, I'm talking about other people and things outside of myself. But in fact, to be very truthful, this is about what I experience in my own self too about how polarization is affecting me and how I've seen it operate in my own life. And so that's kind of part of the impetus is that it's really been a personal journey for me. And so back in 2014 to 2017, my community, the Glenray Home Missioners, sent me to study a PhD in theology in the Catholic University of Louvain. And then as that time kind of came to an end, they asked me to come back to the United States and to take on a pastorate in the one of Glenray's missions in Eastern North Carolina. And I had been given a reprieve, if you will, from the cultural situation in the United States. So going over to Belgium, I knew that there were tensions in the U.S., and but I was sort of outside of that context. And I, I'm not kidding on this. When I came back into the United States, it was just totally apparent to me that something had changed. And that something was that I could almost feel that the divisiveness and the vitriol and the, the kind of polarizing tendencies in the United States had gotten worse and, and had deepened. And I saw it in many different places. And, you know, in the churches I was serving, I heard stories from Glenmarians, people from my community and what they were encountering, other priests and ministers. You know, I listened to my family and my friends and and they were struggling as well. And honestly, I thought like, oh yes, this is no problem for me because I was in Europe and I'm special and I'm going to, you know, sort of stand outside the fray. And within weeks, it was like I was pulled back down into that. I saw polarization operating in my own heart. And I thought, you know, why can't I, you know, listen to this news story about this politician, for instance, or when this church figure speaks, why do I get so upset? You know, and I was finding it difficult for myself to just be kind and engage in deeper conversation. So I said, I really need to look at what is going on when we talk about polarization. So I set myself to study the issue and was asked to give a number of different talks in different locations. And I found that this resonated with a lot of people. And, and and people sometimes in tears would say, you know, Father Aaron, this is such an important topic. 
you must keep pursuing this and maybe even consider writing a book. And at that time, I thought it was a little bit kind of outlandish to even try to do something like that. But enough people kind of, you know, encouraged me to do so. So I put myself to, to write the book, which you referred to. What I found so compelling about it is that in so many different avenues of our life, as you bring forward, there has crept in this divisiveness. It's so clear it is polarization, but I don't think we realize we've been pulled apart and set in separate places. For an individual, we may feel we're the ones that are in the middle and everybody else around us is insane. And you almost want to scream, don't you realize it? But then our voice screaming becomes a part of that unbelievable cacophony of sound and noise. And and it's really good. It's been devastating, hasn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, a couple of things to, to your point there. The first thing is when people hear about the book that I wrote and they think about the theme of polarization, I think a lot of people's first initial response is, I don't want to come near that because I'm going to get sucked into the negativity, you know, this me meeting that's probably going to be pushing a particular agenda. I might be sucked into like partisanship and political rancor. I want to just say that what I really try to do in the book is give us the ability to step back from the negativity and from the vitriol and really try to gain a perspective on what is happening. Because I think that in general, we all are pretty good people. And as I say, and as I use in the metaphor, we've been sucked into the hurricanes of polarization. And oftentimes those hurricanes are affecting us and influencing us in ways that we really are unaware of. And in some cases, it's because of the way in which society and culture has developed over the last five or six decades. So we find ourselves in a hurricane, sometimes not even noticing or knowing that we're in a hurricane, but it's influencing us. And so my job was hopefully to try to help us step back and gain a perspective so that we can kind of take a hold of our lives, especially as Christians, and sort of regain what it means for us to follow Jesus in the particular moment that we're living in. Words matter, don't they? And that's one of the things that you bring forward in the book, that when we use terms like a war, we're at war, it's a little different because when we see war, it evokes fear. And the opposite of faith is fear, I think, in many ways. But that fear fuels so much of the dialogue and the conversation. And it's been like a mushroom cloud, particularly, I would say, at least in the last 10 or maybe 15 years. But it has its origins, too, where even in the place where we're supposed to find that anchor within the church, if we, this is difficult to talk about, but even in that anchor of the church, when we found out so much about what we could say a very sad, sinful underbelly that needed to come out and be exposed, but it made us question that anchor, didn't it? Yeah. And I try to be as sensitive as possible in talking about the church and, and us as the body of Christ, because as you can imagine, I'm I'm a Catholic priest, I'm a missionary. My life is dedicated to going to places where Catholicism has never been before and bringing the gifts of the church. So I love the church. It's, it's my mother. It, it gives me my life and my identity. And I know it does for many other people too. And so when I provide 
what might be some kind of like perhaps a, some critical remarks or some things that we might want to think about within the church about how we maybe aren't necessarily living as the disciples that Jesus desires of us. I tread lightly and I try to be as sensitive as possible. And I do that by actually providing a, an examination of conscience for us. And I say, you know, think about this for yourselves as I will think about this for myself. You know, how have I given way to divisiveness, to betrayal? How am I utilizing, as you mentioned, that war metaphor to sort of influence me when I think about my life as a disciple? And when I think about how I'm going to engage the other, right? It might be the political other. It might be the, the religious other. It might be uh, somebody who's never heard the gospel before. What is the lens through which I look to understand and, and, and really interact with that person? And as I show in the book, it's not, again, I, I tread lightly and sensitively, but this whole rhetoric of the culture wars, which kind of emerged in the U.S. in the 80s and the 90s, and at that point, it was very much a political kind of way of seeing and understanding, but was really brought into the church, and I think quite insidiously, so secretively, without us kind of even knowing that we were doing it, right? It's kind of difficult times. And and now that that metaphor is really, in some cases, it really infuses the way we see ourselves engaging in evangelization. In other words, it's we're in a culture war for the soul of America, and we as Christians need to identify the enemy and defeat them and, and take them out. And what I try to do is really kind of uncover why that's so problematic uh, for us as Christians. And I use a lot of you know the images that Jesus provides and also the example of Jesus himself to say, here's what Jesus is providing to us. Here's what the war metaphor is encouraging and see how these two are divergent. And can we move ourselves to embrace more fully that is the gospel and the metaphors and the images that Jesus provides? And then, of course, the lives of the saints, as I show in a number of examples in one of the main chapters. Yeah, that's a very difficult area for some to to really begin to process in their hearts, because sometimes when you read the scriptures, I mean, you will hear St. Paul use those kind of battle imageries, and that there was the war that took place long before we were even created between the angels, and how we have to be prepared. And yet, St. Paul, in context, is also talking about the love of your neighbor and how you treat and love and all the other epistles, James and John, of course. But then, as you said, the very heart of the gospel. How did Jesus look at this and how did he approach it? And that's that's important for us to keep all of that in context, not just pick out things that serve the purpose. Does that make sense or am I being too general? No, absolutely. And so I think one has to be very nuanced, and I try my best to provide that nuance which you're emphasizing in the book. And so the first thing is I say, you know, I'm not dealing with actual war here or, or just war theory or that what we talk about self-defense. That's a whole other topic for moral theologians, which is a, is a different subject. And I'm also not dealing specifically with spiritual warfare, which is really a, definitely a part of our tradition. And and, and that, that does have a place. I mean, there, there's a lot of imagery, particularly in St. Paul, but also in the Fathers of the Church, that we really, in one sense, we are, we don't want to dialogue with the devil, as I joke with some people, right? We, we don't want to, like, encounter and engage with the devil. In one sense, that is a war and a battle that we should be very careful with. And, and again, I, I nuance that and sort of set that aside. But what I'm really referring to in here is, is when we see the other, another human being, for instance, we know that we've been 
called by, by Christ to share the gospel with that person, if we see them as reduced to being our enemy, who we need to destroy, who we need to keep distance between ourselves and them, you know, who we need to like own, if you will, to take them out by using syllogistic minds and bombs and things like that. If we approach the other in that way, I think we're missing something because I think the overwhelming evidence by Jesus is that to evangelize, to be a Christian is to, to actually walk very close to the other. It might be the leper, the demoniac, it might be the, the ideological person that I don't agree with, who I even see as repugnant. Well, the saints have shown us that what it means is to actually go near that person and start asking important questions, listening to them, dialoguing with them. And I want to be clear on this point. We certainly can speak our truth. That's definitely part of it. I mean, Jesus was very clear with that. I mean, he walked into that, if you will, the storm going on in Jerusalem, and he knew what was at stake. He came close to them. He was intimate with them. And he also spoke his truth. You know, he challenged them, and we can do that, but it's hard to do that from a distance. It's hard to do that when we see the other as an enemy. It's hard to do that if we don't take the risk. So I talk a lot about risk in the book the risk of crossing over to the other to engage that person, we will learn something in that engagement. And we can also offer what I call a salvific moment. That is a deepening of the sense of communion between ourselves, the other person, and of course, God. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. Father Aaron, I couldn't help it as I was reading this is that you're, I hope you'll forgive me, but you're like the good son of Francis de Sales. I mean, so much of what you are articulating and expanding on, given the culture and the times that we're in right now, is what he attempted to do back in the 1600s, this response to a culture that becomes a world, actually, that becomes on fire often when so many of its elements, including the church, find themselves in times of turbulence. And then what does the good disciple of Christ do in that time? And But first, you have to be aware of the circumstances you're in, correct? Absolutely. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that the church doesn't exist in a vacuum. So if the broader culture of the United States is polarized, 
the church that is us as Christians, we're going to have to do our best to figure out how that's affecting us. It's very difficult to live in that culture and not be influenced by it in, in sometimes in a negative way. And then on the other side of that, of course, as I, as I talk about, well, we have to be careful because we also at times as Christians can contribute to the, the deepening of polarization. But one of the things I try to highlight in the book, and, and this is coming from sociologists, political scientists, theologians, and philosophers. So it's kind of across the board. And people recognize today that because of some of the cultural elements that exist today, politics in the U.S. has an exaggerated influence on our lives, and particularly partisanship. And it's it's kind of interesting to think about that, but in the sense, that is the strongest wind in the hurricane, which is influencing us today. And even folks who are writing from a more kind of non-believing or secular perspective say, politics today is now in everything. And that wasn't the case 50 years ago in the United States. You could live your life 50 years ago and have conversations and be involved in boards and community and civic organizations. And you didn't have to be, you know, sort of all, all the time encountering this, this logic of, of, of politics today and, and, and some of the negativity today. But today, because of the 24-hour news cycle, because of elements of social media, because of what politicians have learned is effective in getting people to get out to vote, politics has kind of seeped into everything. And for us as Christians, that's a challenge and a problem because our first priority is to be Catholic, to be Christian, and then to be an American, and then to be a Democrat or Republican, for instance, right? And what I keep trying to do in the book is to sort of draw us back to, if being a follower of Jesus is my first identity and the most important identity in my life, what does that mean? And how do some of these other identities, whether my political identity or, or whether it's the, the country I belong to, how are they impeding me from living as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And there are many ways that this is happening, and I think we need to sort of grab a hold of our identity in Christ and just embrace the beautiful tradition of Catholicism, which is beautiful, and it is abundant, and it is so rich. It's richer than anything else that could be provided to us, and live in that tradition, and then go out in the world and engage in all the ways that Christ desires us to engage. Wow, that's so important, Father, isn't it? I mean, to have that encounter, I mean, when you get right down to it, it's that relationship with Christ Jesus first, to be able to know who you are, to be able to be seep and saturated. So when you do go out in the world, because some of those topics, how we get engaged in politics is because we're trying, I think, for many of us, to stop the injustice. And when you say 50 years ago, of course, we, that brings us back to Roe versus Wade and the whole abortion issue. I, I don't mean because it, it goes so deep to the heart yeah. of so many people that that engagement, the conversations, the, the trying to understand it has this element of I mean, I'm just going to say it. I'm not trying to use inflammatory language, but there is a horror about it yeah. that you want it to stop. And the circumstances that arise that may cause that, you know, do you want everyone to be able to have that peace, that joy, you know, each individual that God has created, right? Yeah. So the alarm goes off and people have to respond. But if they're not responding, potentially, out of that relationship with Christ first, 
it's going to be difficult and it's coming from a different response that is not the Christian nature, the whole conversation, the whole response becomes, the words escape me. All I can think of is convoluted, maybe twisted. Am I exaggerating that? I don't think you are. And that's, I think, from time immemorial, from when the church existed, that's kind of always been the challenge. So Mm -hmm. the church is not called to be sectarian in a sense, right? To, To be removed from society, but you know, we're called to go out into society and, and influence the world around us with the whole spirit of the gospel, right? And what a great task that we've been invited to. But there are also a lot of challenges that go with that. You know, I, so I'm a missionary by training and, and by vocation, and I know that full well in my own life, you know. So if I want to go to a particular place in the world where there seems to be darkness, in as much as I cross over to that, I've always got to be thinking about, okay, now that I've crossed over into this seeming area of darkness, how am I being influenced, right? How am I being changed? Uh, and I think we do. We have to draw back to the source. You know, there's always this movement back to the source, back to Christ, back to the graces of the church, so that we can then go back out into the world and influence the world around us. And I think this is the case in, in the political realm. You know, we, we can't be quietist. We can't remove ourselves from, from engaging in politics. In the United States, the situation exists such that we only really have so many options to kind of choose from. And when there are really important issues, we want to engage those issues. We want to influence that political scene. We want to protect life in all of its forms. So sometimes we kind of have to make small compromises, like we have to join with a group that we think will help influence this issue. But as we do that, we always ask the question, am I staying rooted in the gospel, right? Or am I being overcome by vitriol and negativity, by the war metaphor, if you will, right? Am I challenging whatever party it is that I belong to? Am I challenging them to embrace the fullness of, that is, the teaching of the church, right? The the social teaching of the church. Am I willing to stick my neck out? Which, again, I go into the book. It's very hard for us to do that, and in particular today, to stick our neck out and say, like, uh, can we think about this differently? Can we approach it from a a different perspective? Can we dream? And imagine that our politics would be different than kind of what we've reduced it to today. In a sense, we can really be leaven. I think that as Christians and Catholics can be leaven in the political scene today. But we have to ask ourselves the question, how is politics affecting us? How is it impeding us from really living as Jesus' disciples? And I'm, I'm asking myself that question. So, you know, I'm holding a mirror up to myself saying like, how do I need to change? And what is Jesus inviting me to today? What's Jesus asking me to discern? I love that, to discern. The thing is, I think, again, we go back to that, whether it's a war or maybe we look at it as a storm. And there is a storm that is tossing everyone in every direction. And for the Christian, we're called to be the lighthouse on the edge. Maybe not all of us, if we're not ready yet, or maybe we we don't feel fully anchored in our relationship with Christ, and we need to work on that and build that up and work in our families. But then as we go out in the world, are we a bright light which he is shining through us, or have we become darkened? Because that's what we're told in the scriptures. It was just in, he abides in us, but when we sin, it becomes darkened and we don't assist. And what I mean by that is the lack of virtue, the words that come out, 
of our mouths, the way we describe other people. Detraction, if I'm not mistaken, is still a sin. And we see it, unfortunately, played out in the worst ways on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, you name it, the way we describe our brothers and sisters, but then uh, and how we engage even with our spiritual friends, how we speak about others. Do we get it? Does something go off in us and saying, wait a minute, what's happening to me? Absolutely. I like that metaphor, the metaphor of the lighthouse in the midst of the storm. And I think you're touching on one of the aspects of the book, which I think are important. So I provide very practical tools or, or dispositions that we can cultivate. You might even call them virtues, as you use the word virtues, that we can cultivate in order to live as we're being, I think, invited to live in a, in a polarized world. And and one of those virtues that is really prudence, right? And mm-hmm. and so I think you're highlighting that the whole virtue of prudence that is, you know, we have to come to a particular point in our own lives of faith where we are rooted enough in Christ where we can then, to use that metaphor, get on a lifeboat and leave the lighthouse and go out into the storm in order then to kind of bring whoever's out there, perhaps drowning and struggling, to bring them to safety on the shore. But we have to be really trained, whether that's in using the lifeboat or in swimming ourselves or having the life vest to save ourselves. We really have to be kind of, as I said, rooted in the practices that'll help us to to do this, to, to go out from the lighthouse to, to help those in need. Um, and so prudence is important. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that not all of us will be able to engage with or have a conversation with or evangelize every group of person, right? So you you have to be very selective. And there'll be some people that it's just not going to be a healthy thing for me to try to engage in a conversation with them. It might be because of my own limitations or weaknesses. It might be because I know if I talk to them, I'm going to get triggered and I'm going to be kind of less than my virtuous self. It might be because they're not pursuing wisdom. Maybe they're not interested in wisdom. Maybe they don't really want to have an important conversation about the important aspects of life. If that's the case, then I think it's no problem. I think in prudence, we can say, that's not my mission field, if you will. That's not the person Jesus is sending me to. But maybe this person over here, I see that they have a heart open to learn. They want to have a conversation. Maybe they're afraid like me. Maybe we can find solidarity in our shared fear and our shared fragility or uncertainty. And in that, even though we have differences, we can have a really deep conversation because they want to learn and, and I want to learn and I want to share who I am and they can share who they are. So I think prudence today is really, really important. And just to kind of jump back on the whole issue of social media, it is fascinating. And there is a lot of research on this, that social media does not necessarily help us to be our best selves. It doesn't help us to be, if you will, saintly people. And I think we all can just kind of look at our own lives and think about, man, I shared that post and I really shouldn't have shared that post, or I made that comment and I really shouldn't have made that comment. I wouldn't have said that in person, right? I think we all remember saying, oh man, I I went crazy on Twitter. I never really would have done that in person. So there is a way in which because of the rise of social media, that in a sense, we are acting in ways that we maybe wouldn't in person. There's a certain anonymity to it. Also, there's a whole lot written and researched on the algorithms of social media that they will be giving us those stories and those comments and those posts that will keep our attention. And so often what it is that keeps our attention is the negative comments, the negative posts, the posts that cast the outgroup so-called in a negative light. So we're seeing, I think, in an exaggerated way, a lot more negativity and vitriol from what we're taking in on the internet. And in a sense, I think, as people would say, 
kind of addicted to it. And once that addiction, you know, it starts to sort of seep into who we are and it's very hard to avoid it. And again, I think we start to see, eh, I'm not really who I want to be because of my engagement in various forms of media. We'll continue our conversation in our next episode. With Father Aaron Westman, we've gone inside the pages of The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to newcitypress.com, the website for its publisher, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. Or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or whatever platform you use to stream your podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.